Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings to you. Thanks for coming along. The Thursday edition, this seems to be a very quick week, does it not? You seem, um, like that seemed, it was like your NPR voice coming oh, in. Really? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, it was how, like how you, was you, it? Sounded, you sounded serious and intellectual. <laughs> Well, stick around because we'll deny that <laughs> in those next two hours. Uh, yes. Uh, coming up today, John, yes. uh, on the on five the o'clock hour. Oh, by the way, I'm fine. Mm. I believe you asked me how I was. Right, I'm just fine, John. Um, but in a little bit of pain. Mm. Oh, pain. Mm-hmm. Psychic, physical, mm-hmm. mental. Um, perhaps a little of each. Mm. But it's mostly physical because here's the thing. Yeah. You know, I, I went for a walk yesterday because it was so beautiful. Oh, you hurt yourself? Yeah. What? Here's, no, I didn't hurt myself like I hurt my ankle or something, but I took my, the, kind of my classic walk from the spring summer. It's about two and a half miles mm-hmm. and it's pretty vigorous because yeah. I live in a very hilly part of it's in the, Pittsburgh. Yeah. All right. It's Pittsburgh. It is all. Pittsburgh. And um, I am really sore mm-hmm. after the walk. So you went from like zero to a mm-hmm. hundred. Now here's the thing. I work out regularly. Yeah. Walking is not the same. Walking is a different set of muscles. Sure. It's a different thing. Especially on hills. And it was just a reminder yesterday that I, you you think you might be in okay shape, but you're really not. No, no. No, because I can't believe how much my body hurts from that two and a half mile walk. I like it. Oh, good. So that means you're healthy. E, right? Maybe. And so you do it again today. Wouldn't that mean that I'm not healthy? No, no. Because if you were unhealthy, you couldn't complete the walk. Oh, but today okay. your muscles okay. are just going, holy, right. that was like, a heck of a lot. It sure was. Let's do that again. Good right? grief. Yeah. You hurt most where? Legs. Uh-huh. Le- legs, hips. Mm-hmm. Your big, thick, yep. up-the-hill muscles. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's good. There On this two-and-a-half-mile walk that I do, there is one hill that is a real killer. Mm. Yeah. Do you find – I found myself doing this – Leaning forward, forward. <laughs> which yeah. to me is like right. old man yeah. leaning forward. And I go, <laughs> like I talk to myself out loud, don't lean forward, stand straight. Right. Because right. like the leaning forward like does something. I don't think so. Right. Makes you look old. I actually thought when I was, you know, I don't look ahead of me because the hill is very long. We look down. Yes. Because the hill is very, very long <laughs> and it can be very depressing how long the hill is. So I just keep looking down, right? Yeah. Looking down, looking right. down. You're fooling yourself. But there's this one part at the top of the hill. When you're cresting the hill, it kind of turns to the right mm-hmm. and then things start to level out. And there's a, a guy standing up there. Okay. Because he's just and he's, the same he's looking thing? at his phone. His, he's you know yeah, doing sure. whatever. And I thought to myself, I want him to leave yeah. before I get up there because I am heaving. Yeah. Like it's my whole job. Yeah. You know. So he was up there greeting. Well, he was. 
he, fortunately, he did leave before I got oh, to got to that Sir, space please. because I thought I was gonna I was right. going to actually have to say something out loud like Wow, that's a, like yeah. I like I'm terribly out of shape. I was going to have to mm-hmm. own up to the incredible cardiovascular workout. You don't I was, have to say I'm weak, right? No, to I some stranger, I, I was going to have to. I was hoping he would it give you a stick bad. of gum or something. <laughs> no, yeah, not for me anything. Anyway, coming up in the five o'clock hour, I'm very excited about our conversation with Mary McCampbell coming up at five ten on the arts. Mm-hmm. Empathy, Our Neighbors, and the Arts. Very interesting. I think that's going to be really interesting. Also, Eight Facts About Atheists, Hmm. the latest uh, release from our friends at Pew. Also, we're going to talk about every Super Bowl halftime show ranked. Mm -hmm. I I know my favorite right off the bat, but I'm not going to tell you now. I'll tell you later. All right. Uh, And then in the 4 o'clock hour, uh, Redemptive Entrepreneurship is being a, a small business starter Selfish? Is it just capitalistic? Or does it have a larger kingdom purpose? Very good. Looking forward to talking about that as well. And vocational ministry mm-hmm. in just a few minutes That's as well. Just, I mean, seriously, it's just the tiniest little sliver mm-hmm. of the beginning of the show. Excellent. All right. So as we always do, taking another little tiny sliver, mm-hmm. Kath, the news stories, give us the top four at four. I feel like it might be more than a sliver. Oh, no. Oh, man. For Thursday, February 8th, 2024. Number one, the Supreme Court today for the first time heard arguments over disqualifying a presidential candidate for allegedly engaging in insurrection, with a cross-section of justices questioning a Colorado ruling that barred Donald Trump from the ballot. The case involves not only the mayhem of January 6th, but equally at issue is the meaning of this little phrase, John, added to the Constitution after the Civil War, which disqualifies from public office former federal and state officers who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. Huh. Justice Elena Kagan reportedly questioned why a single state should get to decide a candidate's eligibility for the White House. It just doesn't seem like a state call, said Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The most vigorous disagreements, though, involve the way people think about what Trump actually did on January 6th, because Trump's lawyers, John, are saying that he never actually called for violence. But... The brief that was issued insists that his incessant talk about the election being stolen over these many months and years fueled his followers' feelings of grievance and outrage. The brief says, quote, leaders rarely take up arms themselves. It's from today's Wall Street Journal. Number two. The five Marines who went missing while traveling aboard a helicopter from Nevada to California have been found dead. Officials said this morning that the Marines were conducting a training exercise and flying a CH-53E Super Stallion helicopter from Clark County, Nevada to San Diego. The crashed helicopter was found in a mountainous, rugged area around 9 a.m. on Wednesday. The identities, John, of the Marines have not yet been shared because of standard military procedure, which is not to identify deceased service members until 24 hours after all the next-of-kin notifications have been made. An investigation into the crash is ongoing. It's sad. It's from CBS News. Number three, Ukrainian President Zelensky removed his top general in the most significant shakeup of the country's leadership since the full-scale Russian invasion began almost two years ago. In a statement released uh, last evening, Zelensky said that Colonel General Sursky, that's my best attempt at pronouncing his name, who has served as Ukraine's commander of ground forces, would replace General... 
Sheba. Mm, Zaluzhny, perhaps, as commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces. The removal of the general, widely admired by Ukraine's public and military, comes as Ukraine faces rising challenges on the battlefield. Its manpower, its equipment are both depleted after a failed counteroffensive last year, and Russia is on the attack. While, of course, we know that additional military funding from the U.S. is now in doubt because of what's going on in Congress. You can read more details about that story at the Wall Street Journal. And number four, John, most weight loss drugs are linked to a lower likelihood of depression and anxiety, according to research just published today. And that is your top four. I have four. Wait, wait. They're saying if you take these drugs, you're less likely to be depressed? They looked at 3 million diabetic patients and nearly 1 million non-diabetic patients taking uh, Ozempic, Wagovi, Zepbound, and Manjaro. Mm -hmm. The results showed that the medications may serve a dual purpose, but they said they don't understand them well enough yet to say that these medications could be given just as a treatment for anxiety and depression. (laughs) Okay. All right. Or maybe if you lose a little weight, you feel better about yourself. That's what I was thinking. I wonder if it's, you know... Twofold. Right. could be twofold. Anyway, there's uh, an interesting story about that in today's ABC. Very nice. Let us step away for just a few minutes. When we do come back, we're going to talk to Carolyn, Reverend uh, Carolyn Potit from Mount Lebanon Evangelical Presbyterian Church. She's going to be at the CCO next week, the Jubilee. So we'll talk about vocational ministry. That's next on The Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's The Ride Home here on Word FM. Over the last four or five years, John and I have tracked uh, some numbers that are coming out from different polling places around the U.S. showing that people are leaving the pastorate in incredible number. And not only that, but people who are currently in the pastorate. I mean, this was this. I'm, I'm going to quote a figure from maybe a year ago. Forty percent of current pastors who were serving were looking to leave the profession. The pandemic did not a lot just, of this. Not just looking to leave their church, yep. but looking to, like, I got to find something else to Home do. Home Depot calls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, to talk about that, we've invited Reverend, Ka- Reverend Carolyn Poteet to be with us. Um, Carolyn is the pastor right here in the Pittsburgh area, Mount Lebanon Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and she's going to be part of the Jubilee Conference coming up, which is uh, sponsored and run by the Coalition for Christian Outreach. And Carolyn, we're happy to have you with us today. Hi, it's great to be with you. Our pleasure, Carolyn. So you're going to be at the Jubilee. Of course, that's uh, college kids who uh, are believers or um, seeking somewhat a connection to Jesus. And so uh, talking to these college kids, and as Cass said, you know, we know people are leaving the ministry uh, by uh, by droves. You talk about 50% of pastors in the United States are going to retire in the next five years. And, of course, uh, baby boomers are, are going to lead that charge. That's a huge figure. There's a lot of upheaval about to happen, yes? Absolutely. We've already seen it in our denomination. I'm in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And a lot of people that were thinking they would retire, you know, five, ten years from now because of the pandemic were like, you know what, I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> and and then in our, um, you know, even in our region, there are so many baby boomers who will be retiring in five to ten years. I'm in Gen X, and I've got, you know, 12 to 15 more uh, myself, and I'm one of the youngest people in the Presbytery. Yeah. So we really need younger people to come up and, and join the ministry. 
So I don't think it, it takes an advanced degree to figure out why people don't want to do this, <laughs> Carolyn. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, spend five minutes on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, right. and you want to throw yourself off a bridge. Um, so talk about your experience. Um, and I don't want that just to be the guide, but how, how has your experience kind of informed how you look at your vocation? Right. Um, it, it's been a challenge, especially with the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, wow. For all of us. I mean, everybody, somebody said same boat or same storm, many, many different boats. Um, it is, has been really hard for me personally, uh, as a female evangelical pastor, I'm kind of a unicorn. Um, you know, it was, I did not grow up thinking I was going to be a pastor at all. And lots of, I just, it was never an option. And then suddenly God kind of, um, drop kicked me <laughs> into seminary. And, um, I, I didn't even plan to be ordained when I went to seminary, but uh, God just started showing fruit coming out of my ministry. And, uh, and people were saying, don't you realize you should be a pastor? And I mean, it was really God, God's idea, not mine. Um, so I'm hoping to inspire young people who haven't even thought about that this could be something they would do or want to do to see that God, God's doing new things in the church. And there's, there's this whole vista opening up that I want to cast a vision for them. Like you don't have to go and do the same trudging through institutional church that of the past. God wants us to be ready and for something new that he's doing. And that's what excites me. And, and that's what I'm trying to share with the others, a, a vision for what God's doing in the future. That's fine. So then Reverend, as God used an unusual way, I don't know your story, to open a door for you, you're going to cast a vision for the same thing. I mean, the unexpected happened in your life. So Mm -hmm. as you speak to young students, are you saying, be on the lookout? Uh, God is working in, in in unusual, weird ways like he happened in your life. How do you put that into concrete terms to allow those students to, to find that vision for their own walk and to be a leader in some ways? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I shared with you um, in my, an email that the when Pittsburgh Praise happened a couple of years ago at, at Heinz Field, the very last event at Heinz Field, um, 15,000 people came together to worship and pray and praise God together. Just an amazing event. Mm-hmm. But John Nuzo from the Victory Family Church uh, had a prophecy that he wanted to share, and it was that God was pouring out new wine, and, and there will be new wineskins. And what he was saying was, that new wine is is a new generation of leadership, and we as, as old wineskins uh, with, with older wine, it's not that wine is, is is different. It's that God is doing a new thing, the same gospel, but in new ways that will reach new generations. And He wants to raise up this this new generation and. and God gets to talk to them directly about how, what church is going to be like in the future. He, he doesn't want them to just go and plug holes in the old wineskins. He wants to see new wineskins happening. And, and I just love that vision. I'm going to share a clip with the students about that and, and help them to, to learn you know, what do they need to be looking for in their life? How is God using them? Where do they see fruit that they might not have even seen fruit? Um, talking to, to their elders, to their peers, to um, a, a small group was really important in my call to ministry to have people who discerned with me, um, you know, to, to be able to look at my life and say, yeah, we do see this, these gifts of ministry in your life, and we affirm that. Um, so, so helping them prepare and keep their eyes open and ears open to see, you know, where is there evidence that God's at work? Mm, that's good. The Reverend Carolyn Potitas with us, lead pastor at Mount Lebanon Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, 
Carolyn, I think one of the things that we're going to come to grips with over the next 20 years is how many young people um, have been lost to the church because of sports happening when they were growing up on Sunday mornings. Um, that's a big change from when I was growing up to when my kids grew up. Um, sure. And that has been a really difficult thing, I know, for believing parents to navigate. Um, and it's just gotten a lot of kids out of the rhythm of being in church every Sunday. And so when they get to the point where they're choosing their vocation, oftentimes I think, you know, vocational ministry in the church isn't going to be one of the things on their mind. Absolutely. We faced that problem ourselves. We we even had to change our service time because our kids were having to leave before noon to uh, to go be involved in sports, and we wanted to prioritize them getting fed at least to some. Um, but yeah, that, that habit, the, the value for why should I do organized religion, um, that really has slipped away some. So I think it's important for us as, as older people to, to be engaged in people's lives and to help them see the value. You know, Hebrews says, do not um, let go of, of meeting together as some are prone to do. There, there's beauty in in church and in community. And the interesting thing is, uh, especially with the pandemic, that's highlighted the loneliness in our society and the the broken relationships. You know, we're digitally connected to the world, but we're not connected to each other. Um, So I think it was really important to help people see the importance of being together and 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 in the messy things and the hard days and the good days and being seen and heard and valued. So it, church doesn't have to look like 11 o'clock on Sunday morning necessarily, but church itself as as the body of Christ, as community, as as a, a group of people worshiping and seeking the Lord, that's, that's eternal. We'll, we'll always need that. And I think the new generation may do it differently than we do, but it's, it's still going to be very valuable. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Carolyn, but when I when you're around younger, you know, young adults, I mean, even kids 15 to forward, I mean, things have changed so much. We all know that, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, social media, of course, the weird pressure from social media and the pandemic and, you know, I mean, the sexuality conversations the kids are exposed to now and, you know, gaming and all these things and this loneliness thing. I mean, so so when you're there in front of these kids, I mean, those kids who are going to show up at uh, Jubilee next weekend, that's a very special subset of, of, of young men and women because they're showing up to hear about Jesus, to engage in Jesus' conversation, to engage in ministry. I mean, in many ways, this is kind of like first fruits, right? Um, and I wonder what that's like. I, to me, it's kind of daunting to, to stand in front of someone like that, those, those young faces, those young minds, and, and, and to try to delve into that, to have a conversation about that. It, it, are you a little freaked out by it? I mean, is it a little perilous? <laughs> I mean, because it's so delicate, I would think. Right. I, I've I've been blessed to, to know a lot of young people. I've worked as a chaplain at Waynesburg University for oh, a little good. while, and that's how I got connected with CCO and Jubilee. And then I've got um, several students in my church or from my church that are now considering ministry. I, two of them, I sat down and got, went, okay, if you were going to the seminar, what what would you want to hear? Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> and I think just for them to to have 
a vision for the future that's maybe not necessarily, you know, this isn't your grandfather's church anymore. Right. Um, to, to to cast that vision, they're hungry and they're they're called. And I mean, some of these kids are so gifted and thinking more deeply about theology than I'll ever do. And and it's so fun to see what God has been doing in their lives. They have a beautiful sense of of integration of of the intellectual side as well as the the social responsibility side and everything else. I, mean, I think church under their leadership is going to be amazing. Um, so, so to be able to, to help them to see their own gifts and, and to see how they could, could be a blessing to the body of Christ. Um, I, I'm actually really excited to be able to stand oh, up and good. talk to them all. I appreciate that optimism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Carolyn's going to be speaking at Jubilee, which is a conference put on by the CCO. It comes up not this weekend, but next weekend mm-hmm. uh, downtown at the convention center. And it's not just for students. I want to make sure that people know that um, yeah, I've gone to I went to Jubilee for the first time when I was a freshman in college, and I've gone pretty much every year since. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 perfectly great for uh, for adults for it's people cool. in the middle. I take I took my kids there when they were little. Um, it's just a wonderful time of being able to see how your vocation, your calling um, that is given to you by God, can be manifest in your work. But primarily um, that day, there's I mean, those weekend thousands and thousands, thousands of kids, of, right? So thousands cool. of students. But whether you're an engineer or you're a baker or you are uh, an athlete or you are somebody in a the gamer. arts, uh, that vocation has been given to you by God. Um, so please look more information online about the Jubilee Conference. And Carolyn, we thank you for being a part of the show today. It's been great to talk to you all. Yeah, truly, it's been our pleasure. Thank you. Reverend Carolyn Poteet, lead pastor, Mount Lebanon Evangelical Presbyterian Church, next weekend at the Coalition for Christian Outreach, the Jubilee at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. We're all facing something, whether it's just the everyday stresses of life, the tensions at family or work, or maybe you're navigating a particularly hard season. If we're honest, sometimes we can just feel disconnected from God. Lisa Turkhurst understands the struggle, and she's created some special nights to provide a sacred space for women like you to simply show up, to soak in some truth, to be reminded that there's hope beyond what you're facing right now. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be an incredible one-night event. It's going to be full of wisdom from the Bible, practical teaching, and some powerful worship that hopefully will be a balm uh, that your soul could use. So grab a friend and join us on March 15th, uh, Lisa Turkhurst, and some special Special guests are going to be at Amplified Church in Pittsburgh. It's the You're Going to Make It Tour, again, coming up March 15th at Amplified Church. Oh, I like the idea of a, a sacred space, yeah. right? So uh, want to give away a pair of tickets? Yeah, I think. Uh, Is it two, one? Two pair of tickets. tickets. Fabulous. Yeah. 800-320-8255. You want to be an early bird and grab yourself a, a pair of free tickets. I'm going to say... Callers 2 and 6 today. Excellent. 800-320-8255. Don't miss this. I mean, be one of the first. And if you don't win, we'd suggest you check out wordfm.com and, and go with your church group or your your group of friends. Uh, but uh, really, it promises to be a, a beautiful night of worship and, uh, and a sacredness to lift Jesus up and to uh, have some balm, a little healing in, in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, the Olympics coming up this summer. Yeah. I'm super psyched about it. I'm a big Olympic fan in Paris. Mm -hmm. And I saw a story today that it is going to be historic in more ways than one because the medals that the uh, athletes are vying for are made from metal from the Eiffel Tower. What do you mean? 
The Eiffel Tower itself. Okay, so the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. It's a uh, thousand eighty-three feet tall, mm-hmm. right? It's made of more than eighteen thousand iron parts. Yeah. But when it was built for the World's Fair in eighteen eighty-nine, there was also the centennial celebration for for uh, Paris. Gustave Eiffel thought it would last for twenty years. Mm-hmm. It was built to last for twenty years, but. It has become beloved, even though at the time it was reviled, hmm. absolutely reviled. I think it's beautiful. It, I think it's beautiful, too. Anyway, uh, it's had to have rejuvenating surgery from time to time. I see. So there's a few extra pieces. Exactly. So they have kept all of those extra pieces oh, that they've replaced over the cool. years, which is a very cool thing. For a second, um, I thought it was going to be like the Fern Hollow Bridge. No, it's not like that. Right? No, no, it's nothing like that. Okay. But I think it's really cool. They're cut from girders yeah. and other bits that have been swapped out during renovations. They've been stored for safekeeping all this time. They've been stripped of paint, polished, and varnished, and now they are stamped with Paris 2024 and the game's logo. It's the first time that anything like this has ever happened uh, when it comes to Olympic medals. Uh, They're in a hexagonal form Hmm. because um, the French sometimes refer to their country as that because of its shape. Uh, The jewelry house Chalmay Hmm. designed the medals. That just sounds lovely. Yes. Like, even if they don't know what they're doing, they sound... (laughs) Fabulous. Actually, they do know what they're doing. Anyway, six small clasps that hold the iron pieces in the metals are a wink at the two and a half million rivets that bind the Eiffel Tower together. Hmm. Um, it's the only host city in the history of the Olympics to include chunks of a famous That's cool. monument. Of course, in gold, silver, and bronze. Yep. Mm. Yep. They made 5,084 medals. Wow. That's about 2,600 for the Olympics, 2,400 for the Paralympics, and then some extras depending on, you know, some are going to go to museums, some are going to go to other places, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But if you win, if you're a medal winner, you've got a piece of Paris with you forever. Isn't that a cool idea? That's a great idea. Yeah. It's very, very French. I really love it. Interesting. Okay. We'll take a, a quick break. When you do come back, it's our second guest of the show from the Coalition for Christian Outreach Jubilee event, which is next week. We're going to talk about redemptive entrepreneurship. Our guest, he knows all about this. Straight ahead. It's the Ride Home where Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on Word FM. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been having a lot of conversation related to the Jubilee Conference, which is coming up in downtown Pittsburgh at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center, not this weekend, but next weekend. It's a conference that's specifically designed for university students, but open to everyone. The idea of the conference is discovering what your vocation is and uh, realizing that that vocation is a, a, a road of ministry for you in your life, whether you are an electrician or you're a ballet dancer, um, whatever it is, it can be Christian ministry because Jesus is alive in you. Well, one of the speakers that's going to be at the Jubilee Conference next week is our next guest, David Montague, founder and director of the Memphis Teacher Residency. And uh, we're so happy to have you, David. Welcome in. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Our pleasure, David. So you're going to talk in, in many ways about redemptive entrepreneurship. And um, we live in like uh, this entrepreneurship golden age in many ways, right? I mean, a lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs, but your work with the Memphis Teacher Residency, which you founded and have been producing now, talk about that, that sort of crossroads of Memphis ten- Teacher Residency and, and what it is to be an entrepreneur. Great. Yep. Thank you. Uh, so the Memphis Teacher Residency was created, uh, really 2008 was a planning year, and we opened in 2009, so we're now 15 years old. But uh, prior to that, 
I'd spent uh, about 20 years in the financial industry. I was a, a stockbroker, investment advisor at a firm. Uh, and then uh, my family and I went to uh, East Asia uh, to work with a ministry called Crusade, Campus Crusade. Uh, and we were planning on coming back in 2007. And I remember I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a job lined up. And I remember praying and asking God, I said, show me the greatest need in our city and I'll give myself to it for the rest of my life. And so that was really the beginning of what you might call social entrepreneurship in education, um, uh, which was the genesis of the Memphis teacher residency. Uh, but I love, just as a little bit of an aside, I love the introduction that you mentioned where, uh, you know, you can serve redemptively in any field, whether in, in my case, in MTR's case, it's education, but but absolutely, as you referenced, whether it's a electrician or ballet, uh, I, I feel like I've had an opportunity to do that both in the for-profit world and the non-profit world, and I would encourage listeners to think strategically about their life to, for really one overarching purpose, which is to bring God honor and glory, whatever it is that you're doing. And maybe not, David, look at ourselves as pigeonholed. I mean, you know, just looking at your bio, you've done a lot of different things, and um, education is not your background. So, uh, so can you talk about that, how you've, you develop different skills in, you know, different parts of your life to bring you to where you are now? Well, I think... Um uh, that's a that's a good question, and you know I had a, a, a MTR teacher who was moving careers from educate started a charter school and then took a job in the for profit world. And I wrote him a letter, and uh, one of the things I told him is, you know, my kids will tell me all the time, you know, Dad, yeah, you know, I'll drop my keys or I'll forget where my wallet is, and I'll you know say, Dad, you got you know one job, Dad, just remember where your keys are. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I, I wrote him a letter and I just said, look, you got one job and it doesn't matter whether you're leading a charter school or you're the, the president of a securities firm, a, a, you know, a home securities firm. And Memphis, you got one job. And that one job is that you um, use where you are, wherever you have influence uh, to do one thing, to bring glory and honor to God. And so I think to your your question, I think. If if that is your, uh, you know, if that's front and center with you, then I think you can have uh, one. I think God fills people with His Spirit and empowers them and allows and can work through those people to do more through them than they could do without Him. So that's number one. And but number two, I think you can move into all sorts of fields uh, with a, you know, the the. The, the talk on Saturday will be around sort of what is that redemptive edge in entrepreneurship, but what that redemptive edge is to move out in God's spirit with things like a care for other people, a sense of humility, a desire to bring glory and honor to God, not not for yourself. Like that, to a large degree, certainly on the soft skill side, those are the skills that can allow you to be successful, however you define that, or fruitful in really in any field that you that you move into. Hmm, that's interesting. I was uh, listening to someone, a, a podcast a while ago, David, and, and they were talking about um, popular music, popular music, you know, from the 60s or the 70s and to where we are now. And, and their point was, well, you know, popular music used to be about love or relationships. And, and you know, and, and so popular music kind of like sets the tone for the generation of the day. And then their point was, well, listening to popular music today, it's all about show me the money. Give me the cash. 
And, of course, we've become a, a deeply consumeristic society. So how do you poke into that? How do you talk to, to young minds, college students or high school students, about being a redemptive leader? Of course, we're all leaders in some way. We all know this you know, as believers. But what about that? I mean, people on the fast track to make a buck as opposed to following Jesus, especially from you know, a younger perspective. Yeah. Well, that's a great setup. You know, the, the, the conference theme this year is uh, this changes everything. So I've got this really personal experience with that phrase, this changes everything, mm-hmm. which I think gets at the answer to your question. So uh, years ago, I was probably in my early, th- I'm, I just turned 60. So I'm in my early 30s. So it's been almost 30 years ago. And I took the Perspectives on the World Missions course at a local church. And in the very first lesson of it, the speaker came and spent an hour talking about the difference between a man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. And he said the man-centered gospel is that we, we're, we're all born with a desire to be happy and sort of self-centered. And we intersect, often we'll intersect religion or the Bible, and we continue to carry on that mindset of, I just want to be happy. And so we read the Bible, and we find out that God does these miracles and brings the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and saves us from our sins and going to take us from heaven and take us to heaven. And so we read that and we think, wow, God exists to make me happy. Like I'm into this. And we sort of continue to live even a Christian life can with that perspective. And so his point was actually the way to read the Bible is with a God-centered perspective. And so he took you back to all of those incidences and read in the scripture where he says he's actually doing this not so that you would be out of Egypt, but he did it so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And he went through the Old Testament and the prophets and the New Testament. Jesus even says in John 12, you know, he came so that I, that I might glorify my Father. And when you get and when you get to heaven, it's actually we're going to be, you know, around the throne, worshiping and glorifying and honoring God forever. And he said, you look backwards and forwards and you see that the point is all of history is God's honor and glory. And so where does your life fit into that? And I had never heard that before when I was 32 years old. And so we took an intermission, and I just, I, I, it just something came over me. I started hitting the table. My wife and my brother and a friend of mine were there. And I just said for about a minute straight, I think I remember, I just said, this changes everything. Wow, wow. Like every, I, looked at, I looked at my wife, and I said, babe, yep. do you understand? Everything just changed. Every, everything just changed right here. And so I think that's it. I think, I think, um, I think it's this idea that if if God's honor and glory is the most important thing in your life, then you then you put that above all like the, the things you mentioned, like you know being happy or healthy or rich or what have you. All of those things kind of come from a man-centered perspective of of faith of of the Bible of Christ, but a God-centered perspective. All of those things get put in the background because you now live and exist for one purpose, and that is that in every conversation and every meeting and every phone call, uh, every time somebody cuts you off in traffic, there's only one there's only one driving motivation for your life and your response. How do I act or speak or what do I do in this particular situation so that God gets glory and honor? And I, that's how you, I think that's how you, you, you make being a stockbroker uh, redemptive. That's how you make being an electrician redemptive. That's how you work in education. And so our job at MTR, part of our job is, well, the big part of our job is to train people to be really, really effective teachers so that kids learn at high levels but another part of that job is how do we take these great resources of faith and how do they um, 
how do they connect in public urban education? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so that so that we can we can take these great resources of faith and we can apply those in places that you might not typically think they're known or welcome. Uh, so that's our work, but that's the, that's the, this changes everything that makes yep. everything, every, every part of your life redemptive. Yeah. And I'll go yeah, full John Piper on you there. Um, and just say that that's what brings us our happiness in the end. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's, you know, if, if we seek out the honor and glory of God, then we really do find our greatest happiness and our greatest yep. joy, because that's what we're made for. Um, yep. And so it really is the perfect c- circle. And you've said it well, it does change everything. We're talking to David Montague, founder and director of the Memphis Te- Teacher Residency. Um, so you've been in Memphis your whole life, as I read. Um, talk to us about what the Memphis Teacher Residency like physically does. Um, yeah. How what, what your recruiting's like, what your mission's like. Yep. Great. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Our mission statement is Christian love expressed in equal education. Uh, we run a residency, which is similar to the medical industry. That's where the idea came from that prior, you know, there's different aspects of education. You could have urban education, suburban, private, homeschool, rural. Uh, and so there's these different fields, you might, uh, different uh, specialties, if you will, of education. And, and we think, similar to the medical industry, that a, a year of preparation, learning from a high-quality teacher would be really, really helpful before you become the teacher of record in a, in an urban, high-need environment. And so that's what we created. Uh, our residency is, is one year. Uh, it begins with a co. It's a cohort model. Begins in June of every year. We bring in a cohort of ideally 50 residents per year that are typically what well, they have to be college grads with a 275 GPA or higher. But the, the cohort is generally 22 to 25 year olds, and, and and ideally 50, 40 to 50 would be our normal size. The residency has three components. One is a master's of arts in teaching, uh, which is provided with no tuition, so it's a free master's. The second component is an internship, so you're paired with a mentor teacher, and you co-teach with that teacher four days a week, Monday through Thursday, for the entire year. We assign to you uh, uh, an instructional coach who will coach you, observe you, give you feedback throughout the entire year. That's the second component. And then the third component is just a strong sense of community. So we have in, in, in typically in urban education, there's a big retention problem. Uh, in, in our city, 20% of the teachers leave in the first year and 50% leave within three years. And so the reason people do that typically is because they feel isolated and alone. So we, we surround our residents with a strong sense of Christian community. We all live together, not we, the residents all live together in an apartment complex. They take their master's co- co- uh, uh, work in a cohort model. Uh, and and uh, we we build this strong sense of community during that year. Uh, the housing is free, and we pay a twelve hundred dollar month stipend. is sort of a, a way to make sure that they can live without a, a normal income for that residency year. At the end of that year, they graduate, uh, receive their teaching license, and then they are hired into. <clears throat> One of our partner schools. So we have 34 partner schools in Memphis within five strategic neighborhoods, partner neighborhoods. And our graduates now, after their one year of residency, commit to teaching for three consecutive years in a in a partner school and a high need school in Memphis is sort of a repayment for the expertise and financial benefits we gave them during that residency year. So that's the model. 
Again, we've been doing it for 15 years. We've had 700 teachers, wow. residents come through our program. We've That's got cool. about 300, 292, I think exactly, are still teaching in one of our high-need Memphis schools today, and we're consistently rated. Uh, fortunately, the Tennessee Department of Ed ranks every teacher prep program in Tennessee, and every year, you know, for the last five or six years, we've either received the single highest rating or the second highest score of all 42 programs. So it's we're relatively mature and and have proven a great deal of effectiveness in our in our history. Wow, David, that's so impressive. It's really, really, really love really it. Really interesting. Happy to know you and uh, have a little peek at what you're doing here with um, the entrepreneurship program and uh, the work that you're doing. Hey, if people want to find out more about you, you got a website they can go visit. We do Memphis. TR.org, Memphis, T for Teacher, R for Residency, .org is our website. Um, and we're currently in the middle of our recruiting for our next cohort that will begin June 1st. So if you're a college senior or graduated from college and you're interested, you can apply now until March 1st, I think, is our deadline. Fabulous. That's David Montague, founder and director of the Memphis Teacher Residency. He's going to be speaking at next week's Jubilee Conference put on by the CCO. David, a pleasure to have you today. Great to be with y'all. In a banner year, U.S. automakers in 2023 sold 15.5 million new cars. Driven by a pent-up demand overall, sales jumped 12.4% from the previous year. Really? Double-digit sale increases. High dealership inventory, moderating car prices were two reasons for the growth, helping make for a tough 2022, which was the worst year in a decade due to supply chain disruptions and production snags. Mm, Okay, so prices have come down slightly. Moderately. Okay. Right? Because you know I'm, you know I have to buy a car. I know you are. I know you're in the market for a car. Mm-hmm. So let me give you uh, the top ten cars that sold last year. Oh, okay, in America. Yes, I'm ready. Best selling cars ten forward. The Jeep Cherokee sold oh. two hundred forty four thousand cars. Now I'm not saying these are the best cars. Right, right, right. right. These are the best selling. Right. I'm not buying a Jeep Cherokee. Jeep Cherokee sold two hundred forty four thousand. Okay. The Nissan Rogue, two hundred seventy one thousand vehicles. Wow, were I'm, sold. I'm never buying another Nissan. The Toyota Camry okay. sold two hundred ninety thousand vehicles. Well, that's been a that's been a really solid performer for decades. Stalwart, you can't go wrong with yeah. a Camry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a GMC Sierra pickup truck. Okay, two hundred ninety six thousand vehicles. Can you guys see me in that? A pickup truck. Yeah, yeah, with a cowboy hat. I like it. Mm, yeah, I do. Uh, a Honda CRV. Up, oh, John's car. Three hundred sixty one thousand CRVs okay. sold. A Tesla. A Model really? Y Tesla, four hundred three thousand vehicles. Well, that's a that's not the base level. I don't think mm-hmm. that's like the higher level one. Okay. Um, a Toyota Rav four four hundred thirty four thousand vehicles okay. were sold. A Ram pickup four hundred forty four thousand vehicles. A Chevy Silverado five hundred fifty five thousand vehicles. And the best selling vehicle, the Ford F one fifty seven hundred fifty thousand. Wow, so that's top, a lot of trucks in America. Yep. Uh, of the, uh, the top 10 vehicles, one, two, three, four of them were pickup trucks. And only one, two of them were sedans. Wow. So the Camry uh-huh. and the Tesla. Tesla are the only sedans. Yeah. 
two mini SUVs. Yep. The uh, the CRV mm-hmm. and the Rav Four. Yep. And the rest pickup trucks. The, wow. The Jeep and then the, and the Jeep the Cherokee and and the Rogue. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well. I, You're looking for a vehicle. I'm not buying. <laughs> I'm not buying a pickup. Not a pickup truck. No. A CRV. Sure. Right. Um, sure. How about a Tesla? I'd love a Tesla. Mm. I don't think I have the the wherewithal. I don't think I have the the correct uh, economic standing right. to own a Tesla. Well, a new car is not cheap either way you cut it. I've never owned a new car. Neither have I. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, greetings. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming along today, the 5 o'clock hour of the Thursday show. Uh, So the Super Bowl this weekend, but who would have ever thought that a child's toy would have been the inspiration for the name of the greatest spectacle in professional sports? All right. Well, it's not. To, it's safe to say that not even Lamar Hunt, the man who is credited with coining the Super Bowl name, could have thought that his idea, let alone the game itself, would become the cultural phenomenon that it is today. However, Lamar Hunt, uh, his his foray into professional sports had a humble beginning. He tried and failed twice to acquire an NFL team. And that's when he decided to do the unthinkable. He decided because he couldn't own a team, he was going to an, an NFL team. He was going to create um, a new football league that would one day compete with the National Football League, which was the American, American football, football league, league, of course. So time went on, and of course, the AFL it rose in popularity, and so the NFL said to the AFL, "We should become one." And so we're going to. Instead of doing a pro, uh, the end of the championship game, they were calling it the championship game at the end of the season. Mm. What would that be? So Lamar Hunt, Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of football at the time, they threw around a bunch of ideas. Lamar Hunt proposed the Super Bowl because his kids in the 1960s played with a Super Bowl. Mm, okay. You remember the Super Bowl? Is that the one that bounced like yeah. incredibly? Yes, I, I do had remember a, it. I had probably 10 yeah. of those things. Okay. They were super cool. Did you ever play with one yeah, of those? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So Lamar Hunt proposes to Pete Rozelle. Lamar Hunt says this. Pete Rozelle, just a regular guy, but he was a stickler for the English language. And he thought super was like neato or oh. gee whiz, that it diminished in some way the the hope for greatness of this game. Yeah. They went back and forth, back and forth. He said it went on for weeks until finally Pete Rozelle, he said, okay, I'm done. Let it be the Super Bowl because I have no Because there were all the college bowl games that were already in existence. I've got no other name that comes even close to this in what I think would be a popular name. So from the Super Bowl comes the Super Bowl, which we'll hear and see and watch on Sunday. I never knew that. I did not either. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, let me tell you something else that's interesting. Yeah. Is the article in today's Washington Post on 12 crowd-pleasing dips for the Super Bowl. Dips. Dips. Now, I like dip. I'm bringing it up 
because, and believe me, we have a lot of serious conversation over the next hour. Yeah. But I want to start this off in the right way because we're right. days away from the Super Bowl and you like a dip. Oh, I love a dip. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if I, I haven't known a person in life who likes a dip more than you. <laughs> really? You love a dip. I do, of course. Lex, you like a dip. Who doesn't love I a dip? I love a dip. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if you love one as much <clears throat> as John, but anyway. Okay. So I want to just give you the, the dips that are listed here and just kind of get your feeling on it. Okay. Sure, it. sure, sure. Okay. Number one is the spinach artichoke dip. I love it. Do now, you? But I, I'm not big on the spinach artichoke in the bread, the bread bowl. Okay. So what would? So what about? Okay. So this one is in. Hold on. I'm. Gonna, I know this is radio, but I'm turning around to show John. Oh, this is lovely. like in a cast iron. That's thing. excellent. That, isn't that beautiful? Now, what are you? You don't want to dip bread in there? No, no. You know, oftentimes yeah. you see it. Yeah. It's like in a bread. Yeah, bowl. Yeah. You don't like that. What is that? But. <laughs> What? Seriously. Why? Is it too much? Too many carbs? It or? just seems like, I don't know. It's like overkill. Oh, just, it's like froofy? Let's do a dip. And okay. I don't need the little bread bowl Are you going to dip bread in it? A cracker. A hearty cracker. Oh, but you don't want to dip a Not ripped up piece of bread in there. No. Oh. You? Um, I think it's fine. It seems a little heavy to me. The spinach artichoke dip? Yeah. It's a little mm, heavy. Mm, that's good. Okay. Uh, what about seven layer dip? Yep, sure. Fine I out. love that yeah. stuff. What What are the seven layers? Okay, well, the se- they're they're like Mexican ish. Okay, right. So you beans, you've got you've got your refried beans. Cheese, I'm going to say maybe your guac, sour cream, sour cream, mm, tomatoes, mm, jalapeno, maybe green onion, yes, black olive, Lovely. something like that. Lex, that. how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. I love a seven layer. Don't dip. you? It's so good with like a really hearty tortilla. Chip. Yeah, that's isn't very nice. that delicious. I'm surprised there isn't like a dip restaurant. That's yeah. all they sold was dips. Kind of like like a fondue restaurant. Right, exactly. Except for, no, that's you a mean, good point. You mean the melting pot, guys? Come no, on. No, I know, but I mean, but that's fondue. <laughs> right. Yeah, But he's fair. saying like cold Just dip. dip. Wait, isn't there a fondue restaurant over in Station yeah. Square? Is that still there? Oh, yeah. It's still there. The melting pot. What's yeah. she talking about? I like a fondue, too. Do you have a fondue thing? No. That's like so 60s. It is. It's super mm-hmm. 60s. I like it, though. Warm chipotle black bean dip. Love it. Yeah, sounds, sounds now, really I've, good. I've got to be honest. I've never had this, mm. but I want it. Yeah. Lexi, you have any familiarity with this? Not at all, but it sounds so good. So what is it? Black bean it's and cheese? Gr- Listen, it's ground beef mm-hmm, mm. and onion uh-huh. and black beans. And then you put cheese on top yeah. and you put it and maybe some chilies. Look, mm, and you, oh. you cook it in like mm, a little mm. maybe cast iron, yeah. a small cast iron skillet. Yeah, or, that's very nice. Yeah, that looks very you good know, to me. The Super Bowl uh, advertisements, you know, the commercials. You would think that one of the drug companies would be selling a cholesterol drug during the Super yeah, Bowl. Yeah, that would. Y- right? You're right. You're right. A, a good sixty second <laughs> exactly. bit, right? Because you know there's going to be a lot of heart attacks on Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, you ready for this? Please. Loaded potato dip. Mm-hmm. Say no more. Are you kidding me? Bring it, Kathy Evans. I mean, listen. This whole thing starts with a tub of sour cream. <laughs> Your recipe starts that with a... That is if the it, beginning. If of, it starts with a tub of anything, you know you're in trouble. So this is what you're going to add to it. You're going to add bacon to it. Oh, yeah. You're going to add shredded sh- cheddar, chopped fresh chives, mm. hot sauce, yep. black pepper, salt, and then you're going to use potato chips for dipping. <laughs> That's got my name written all over it. <laughs> it, is. it should be just called the John Hall loaded dip. Okay, queso. Yeah, that's good too. Lex? <laughs> it's classic. Mm-hmm. It's hard to mess up. Too. Yeah. It is hard, hard to, mess, to mess, up. mess up. But I I hate to say that I feel a little sick after. A queso. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't 
I, I just can't do now, that. Now, wait. Lux brings up a good point because none of these recipes, now again, super easy to make, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, because you've never made any. Even I could make these, right? right? So even easy. You. Yeah. Even you. Okay. Uh, triple onion dip. Oh. Okay, now that's going to separate the boys from the men. Right? I think so. And that's going to that's going to sort of mess up your party, okay. isn't it? Uh, maybe you might have to just, or maybe you <laughs> invite couch. people who are who are already just really right. comfortable with each other. This side of the room is the onion dip. Okay, so instead of the sour cream, though, yeah. you're starting with Greek yogurt, so that helps, mm. right? You're adding a little mayonnaise, and then you're doing uh, spices like garlic powder, onion powder, salt and pepper. Yeah. But then you're adding scallions into mm-hmm. it. Okay, the green onion. Then you're adding a small yellow onion. Also, <laughs> that's a delish. Bring it. Do you like it? Do you like, would you eat an onion like that? Yeah, yeah especially yeah. because the onions in this, and I should have mentioned this at the start. You cook this okay. before you add, you sure, cook sure. the onions down before you add them into the yogurt and right. such. That should have a warning: family and close <laughs> friends only. Right? Okay, uh, I know we're late on time. Hot buffalo chicken dip, uh, the best, yummy, so mm-hmm. delicious, mm-hmm. Lex. It's my favorite dip to me. Boom. There you go. This Home run, favorite. Lex. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Um, baked hummus. Uh, okay. Yeah, They're sure. saying if you've never had warm hummus, this yeah. might be a revelation. I'm sure. Beautiful. Uh, it includes uh, cherry tomatoes, harissa, and pine mm-hmm. nuts. I need I all that. I think I would, too. All right. I'm going to put a pause on this because okay. I have four other dips I want to discuss okay. in great detail. And that will happen as the uh, last hour unfolds. Washington Post? Washington Post today. Uh, are the recipes in there? Yes. Please send that to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick break. Oh, Come yeah. back. Coming what are we talking about? Empathy, our neighbors, and the arts. Dr. Mary McCampbell, coming up next. It's The Ride Home. Now, we live in a very dark society, right? Mm-hmm. Our inhumanity towards each yeah. other, to our own selves, right? The darkness that surrounds us. So, if you spoke to... 10 strangers on a street corner and said, please describe empathy for me. What is empathy? Show me empathy. How does that work? I think a lot of people would be bereft to describe that, to engage in it. Dr. Mary McCampbell is with us. She's a a writer, a speaker, an educator. Her publications span the worlds of literature and film and popular music. Uh, She is the author of a book called Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. And um, Dr. McCampbell will be next weekend at the Coalition for Christian Outreach, the Jubilee at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. We'll talk about that. But um, Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you, Mary. It looks like we have a lot of friends in common, uh, but we've never had you as a guest on the show, so this is terrific for us. Um, Can you talk about that empathy vacuum that maybe we're in right now? Yes. I mean, I would would say that, you know, empathy, lack of empathy tends to be... um, Related to the uh, constricted imagination, hmm. um, the you know it's kind of like you have to exercise that empathy muscle of trying to use your imagination to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, and so it's very easy to stay in your little sort of tribe or cohort or you know ideological space and not even consider um, the life of the other. And as much as I I love 
I've I've been a part of many good online communities, and some in some ways that's helped me with empathy. But also, I think um, with the rise of you know social media and being behind our computer alone, it's very easy to um, not even imagine what the person on the other screen on the other side is like. So, um, yeah, I, I think we really are having a great. Uh, yeah, constriction of the that you know that that imaginative muscle. So, hmm. so then go into that a little bit, Mary. Talk about this. W- why is imagination uh, so important for us to love our neighbors? W- what is that all about? Well, I think that um, to truly love our neighbors. I mean, it, it, you know, we can say as a pat phrase, "Oh, I love everyone." Yeah. But when you come into contact with someone, especially someone who's had a very different life experience, um, I think there's such a natural tendency to label and dismiss, to assume, you know, well, that's the way that person is. They came from that community or that background or, um, you know, sadly, we see it with race, with, you know, they're that skin color, all of these things, rather than um, really I, I mean, I feel like we have to use our pause and use our imagination and be attentive to try to seek um, understanding and seeing God's image in another person and seeing those common likenesses mm-hmm. and their, you know, their desires, um, their their deep desires for God, for meaning, for purpose. Yeah. But I think it's just so easy, especially in a society where. Um, quick <laughs> convenience and quick thinking is, is, is rewarded rather than contemplation. And so there's just this tendency to snap into, oh, that kind of person, right? Right, right, right. Um, and so the imagination is what helps us to really envision, you know, what is it like to be them? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so that idea of what is it like to be them. Walk a mile in my shoes. Yeah, it's kind of at the essence of what art is, right? Is that you are, you're either trying to explain to an audience who you are in your art, or you're trying to take on another person and their community and try to explain who they are. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and part of that is, so in, in my book, I, I start out talking about the human condition, and I relate it to some of Blaise Pascal's excellent discussion of the human condition about the, the idea every human being has both wretchedness and greatness in them mm-hmm. and the ongoing struggle of those things. We might, you know, um, call it, you know, the, the, the spirit in flesh. Um, and I, I think that art, that enables us to see that in other people and to see that no one is sort of 100% bad or certainly not 100% good. And just the struggle and complexity of being human. Um, art is asking us, I mean, there's such a difference. There's, there's one novel that I love to teach and, and write and talk about called um, What is the What by Dave Eggers. Hmm. And it's the story of a Sudanese refugee. And I tell students, you know, this is 500 pages of this person's story and this person's interior monologue. And it's so different. It's, it's an act of sacrifice to, to take your time to read that 
and to hear, to, to really see the way they are human, even in such a different circumstance. That's very different than just being flipping across and seeing a news story for three minutes mm. about Sudanese refugees. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. It doesn't accomplish so the same thing inside you. Yes, it doesn't, because it's it's almost like you have to sacrifice and you have to be vulnerable. To, you know, I mean, and that's the way it is with other human beings to really get to know another person's experience. You have to sacrifice time and be attentive. And the art can help us kind of do that in this sort of safe way and practice it. Um, and then that will maybe help you to to see your neighbor a bit differently when you come into contact with them. That's good. We're talking with Mary McCampbell. She's a, a writer and a speaker and author. Uh, her book is called uh, Imagining Our Neighbors is as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. So, Mary, um, in the darkness of this world, I, I often wonder, and of course you've made this the center point of, of much of your thought and writing, uh, empathy, uh, learned at our mother's knee, um, and if our mother's need doesn't provide empathy, do we learn empathy along the way? This void of empathy, is it because we're not being taught empathy? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I would relate, from a Christian perspective, I relate empathy to discipleship and to a way that we, we look at the ultimate, um, the ultimate picture of empathy is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Yes. Christ taking on flesh and becoming human and feeling the way that we are feeling. And I commonly go back to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and the the Samaritan, you know, unlike the religious leaders who went to the other side of the road and didn't help the Samaritan, because they do the, you know, they 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 originally they don't take the risk. They are not making themselves vulnerable or sacrificing. They say, "I need to be safe," so they go to the other side of the road, and that's a that's an understandable human response yeah, sure, at times. Sure. Um, but the Samaritan is sacrificial in his love, and MLK said about that about the parable that the the religious leaders, you know, their their response was, what's going to happen to me if I go over there? When MLK said our, our thinking should be, what's going to happen to him if I don't? If I don't, right. Yeah, right. and it's not, but it, and again, just like so much of Christ's teaching, um, it, it seems sometimes going against our natural desire, which is just self-protection and self-promotion. Mm -hmm. And so it is something I think you have to learn through um, really engaging with stories and also not just stories through the arts and through the Bible, of course, but also just being around people who practice it mm -hmm. and having, and also you being treated. I've heard stories of, you know, a white supremacist leader and that the way that uh, recently that I'd read a book about a white supremacist neo-Nazi leader and that the way that he came around to seeing how wrong he was was because of an African-American man who showed empathy and kindness to him. Hmm. And, you know, so it's, it's very reflexive. Yeah. It goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Mary McCampbell is uh, with us on the show having a conversation. Mary is a writer, a speaker, and an educator. Her book is called Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. Now, I'm looking at this uh, Graham Greene uh, quote that we've been talking about. Uh, Hatred is just a failure of the imagination, which uh, is at the beginning of your book. And I think, you know, there are going to be people listening to the program right now who think, well, hatred is a sin. It's not a failure of imagination. Um, is that take also a failure of imagination? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I need to, I guess I'll give the context for yeah. the quote. Um, the quote is in the, is a, a very pivotal scene in the middle of the Catholic writer, well, kind of Catholic writer, <laughs> Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory. Um, and and in it, this this priest who is a nameless priest that's just called the whiskey priest, um, who is this is this is in Mexico in a time when it was illegal to be Catholic. And as much as he was a sinner and knew it, he also was risking his life to be a priest underground. And he gets put in prison, and he's with this what's called a pie, you know, this that Graham Greene defines as a pious woman. And and this pious woman sees him and smells the whiskey on his breath and understands that he is immoral in his behavior. And she says to him, um, I think we'd be better off if you were dead. You know, like we don't need this bad representation of the faith. You're a bad priest. And so his natural inclination is to be very angry and hate her. But then he stops for a moment, and it says that he envisions, he looks closely at her, he sees God's image in her, and he realizes that's when he says hate is a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. And so the, the point is that the, he has to stop and use his imagination to really see. And then he says he feels responsible for her. He feels a connectedness. Why is this woman this way? Why is she so angry and hateful? It's very much like when you read Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shows the same sorts of things. Um, The pious people are often the most difficult because they're so caught. They're like Pharisees. You know, they're they if you don't follow these rules, then you're just you're just completely. It's a very black and white way of looking like you're beyond redemption, Hmm. whereas this very sinful character, he is Christ-like in the fact that he looks at this woman and can see God's image in her. So that's where I think Green is saying, he's not denying that it's a sin, but I, I think he's saying it, it, it's a sin to just just deal so flippantly and quickly with other human beings that you can't even take the time to be attentive and imagine their story and see their humanity. That's really good. So I think that's what he's going for. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've just got a couple of minutes left, but I, I need to talk to you about this because I know that you're interested in, in film. And, uh, of course, you know, I think we live in this golden age of film, what with all the streaming that's going on right now. But in the long list of the things that I kind of obsess about and or worry about is— Usually at what what time? 3 a.m. Got it. Uh, Along <laughs> yeah. one of those lists is murder. And I, and I say this because Kath and I read this article the other day that they were talking about the top podcasts in the country. And of those podcasts, true crime podcasts lead the way. And, you know, so and then and then, of course, streaming, you know, I mean, I've got Netflix and HBO and, you know, Prime and Hulu and all that. And there's so much of that. I'm watching this. You know, it was it was described as a dark comedy. 
and it's a, a series called Barry, and it's on it's on HBO Max. Uh-huh. Oh, it's a dark comedy. Okay, I'll watch that. I mean, seriously, it's kind of funny, but man, there is so much murder in this po- in this streaming thing. And I think this is just me. Well, of course, I, he's a mercenary, right? Yeah, he's a he's a killer. He's an assassin, but he's also taking an yeah. acting class. Okay, great. But you know, what I mean, we are surrounded by this stuff. We are all, you know, as a nation, consuming violence as means of entertainment. And of course, you look at you know murder rates or violence in, in the country. I, is it just me or is it, you know, the lack of empathy that, you know, is in our art and in our culture and how we talk to each other and engage with each other? I mean, it drives us in this really weird way, doesn't it? Yes, I I, I think so. And again, I go back to, you know, murder as you're objectifying another human being, you're playing God, you're dehumanizing in the ultimate sense, right? You're not, and it goes back to that not seeing the image of God in the other person, yeah. not seeing the sacredness of the other person. And in a theory, you know, it's interesting, you mentioned, I've not watched Barry because I was nervous about, you know, I start watching, I, I'm a TV, I love TV series, yeah. you know, I love them. And I, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I get afraid going in thinking, is this going to make me think in a flippant manner about murder? Yes. Right, right. You know, the, the answer is yes. To, mm-hmm. It does. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've been concerned. Now, I, I remember when I first watched The Sopranos, I was worried the oh same gosh. thing. But as I went, went in, it didn't. Mm, that's it interesting. It didn't. It actually, it, the, the characters were so complex. You know, and I think it's with with engaging in art, I think that's another thing is that gravitating towards art that really shows how the difficulty of being human and really both emphasizes the fallenness and the image of God in human beings rather than just sort of treating human, you know, like even some of this, um, yeah, when art is just, when it just sort of ends really quickly and easily and it's unrealistic i think that can actually be dangerous um but yeah i, I haven't watched barry so i can't say much about it but i love well, the first season with that. me too mary well, that's listen, why i bring it mary, up we'll have you on again so we can talk through because <laughs> john's a big film buff <laughs> i'm into tv we, we don't have enough people to talk to about these things yeah yeah so yeah so watch what's season one of barry i'd be kind of curious your take on it mary Okay. Very good. All right. And Very then good. watch True Detective on HBO, which I'm in the middle oh, of. Oh, I love that. Or oh, Bosch. Oh, oh, or Bosch. Man, I love Bosch. Boy, Harry's my favorite. No way, you're watching True Detective, the Jodie Foster thing. I can't watch that because I see the previews when I watch him Barry. And I it's can't, tough. That's I'm too not much. recommending it to the listening audience. I'm just saying that she's a very compelling actress. Of course and she is. And it's, yeah. Mm. Mary, you, you watch True Detective? I've just, well, the first season with okay. Matthew McConaughey and... Oh, okay, um, that is fantastic. I haven't seen the most recent one, but the first season is just wow. It's, right. it's brilliant. Well, this one's pretty wild, too. Anyway, go, Mary, Mary, it's been really good to meet you. Thank Thanks you so lot. much. Yes, thank you. Great talking to you. Yeah, you good well. talking to you, too. That's Dr. Mary McCampbell. You can check out her book, Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. And don't forget, she's going to be in town in Pittsburgh next weekend for the Jubilee Conference put on by the CCO down at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. It's for students, but it's open to everyone. Does this make sense? Does what make sense? 
foreign language films. Oh, yeah. Or TV. Yeah, very much so. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was, was a quick turnaround. We were watching something last night. El Conde. Oh, yeah. It was a vampire film. Oh. With Pinochet from Chile. Okay. Fascinating. It's Spanish. We loved it. Yeah, of course. 100%. I mean, in lieu of travel... Wouldn't you want to watch a film to see how people in other countries think about their culture and themselves? And I love it so much. Yeah, I'm not a... Please, watch as many foreign language films as you can. Doesn't... Uh, yes, it makes sense to me. I love it so much. Oh, thank goodness. I what thought if you were I would have go. said the reverse? Oh, I would have, my head would have exploded. Yeah, you're right. That's right. You would have disqualified me from further participation oh, good. You love it. in the show. What are you I love it? it. I just watched Back to Burgundy, which is a French film oh. about uh, a, a trio of siblings who are, are dealing with the death of their father who owned the family vineyard. Oh, that's interesting. In uh, the this? Bordeaux region of France. Mm. And so they're trying to figure out whether they have what it takes to do this. First of all, can they get along? Yeah. Second of all, times are different than when their dad was running it. Mm-hmm. And the wine in- industry is different. And they're grown-ups as opposed to being 10-year-olds sure. when they when he was training them up in the industry. I, oh, I can't cool. wait to watch it again. Really? Is it a I movie love, or a It's series? a movie. It's a movie. What's it on? Back to Burgundy. I got it from the library. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Back right. to Burgundy. Well, you're, but, you're watching movies from the library. I am. What is this, 1981? I know. What is going on? I yeah. was there to get a book and I saw that and I was like, oh, I'm it's on DVD. It's on DVD. Excellent. Listen, Back all I Burgundy. can say is you get a... I love... I say this over and over again. You're yeah. probably sick of it. I love to hear people tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And how French people tell their story yep. is different than how we tell our story or how we would tell their story. Yes. Very good. All right. Does this make sense? The after work nap. Oh. Like prior to dinner? Yeah. Yeah. You come home, long day. Now, is it wise to take a nap? Is that going to disrupt your sleep? Maybe. Or... Give me a little shut eye here for Maybe. 15 or 20 minutes. It might, and it might engender uh, dissension between you and your spouse who's cooking your dinner while you're sleeping. Oh, I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. Why? Have you been doing that? Well, we get out of work very late. We do. I try to catch a few. Do you? Yeah. You have some shut eye before dinner. Mm-hmm. Lexi. Yeah. Yeah, go in there and sit in the old easy chair and put my feet up on the ottoman and close the eyes and I take a few Z's. Wow, I have uh, never ever done that. Haven't in you? My, no, no. Now I haven't caught any backlash there from the kitchen. Well, th- it might be coming. <laughs> I better not bring this up. Yeah, <laughs> I think a little resentment. I, th- I mean, so? foreign language films make sense. Yeah. That I don't think so. That makes perfect sense. Earlier in the program, we were talking. Dips. So this is dip part this two? This is dip part two. And here's the thing. The Super Bowl is only days away. Yeah. We're all trying to figure out what our you know menu is going to look mm-hmm. like. And I don't know a single person on earth who loves a dip more than John. Thank you. So uh, so earlier, uh, we talked about the, um, the Washington Post article, which is titled 12 Crowd-Pleasing Dips. And they all look pleasing to me. Anyway, yeah. we already talked about spinach artichoke, seven layer, mm-hmm. warm chipotle black bean. Lovely. Loaded potato dip, which Whoa. is clearly one step short of a heart attack, queso, triple onion dip, and hot buffalo chicken. Well, none of these concoctions are healthy, right? But some of them are a lot healthier well, than others. They all have like mounds of sour yeah. cream no, or cheese. N- yeah, but or... not the warm chipotle black bean dip. Really? No. There was cheese in there. There was a little bit on top, but it was mostly onion and black beans. 
Okay. So I what's feel, holding it all together? Though? I feel pretty. It's, it's, it's not. It's not really held together. It's more of a. Loose. If you can imagine, like the consistency of chili. Mm. You know okay, what I mean? Yeah. So then you need like a Frito dip. You do. It actually a shows, scooper. as as Lexi said, a hearty tortilla chip. Uh-huh. Right? That's what you, that's what you need. Something to scoop it. Okay, but I, but I want to bring up the warm hummus dip uh, mm-hmm. because that was uh, where we left. It's called baked hummus. I've never had hummus hot, and that turns me off a little. No, it's really good. Okay. No, no. Okay. But you like hummus, right? I do like hummus, but I like it cold. Yeah, well, usually you just pull it out of the fridge, right? Right, right, right. So right. to heat it up changes that, of course. Okay, so this is a combination of uh, either store-bought hummus or hummus that you've made yourself. Mm-hmm. But then you mix it in with some, like, some whole chickpeas. Wait, wait, wait. You're doing store-bought and your own? Together? Well, no, eat one or the other. Oh, okay, all right. One or the other. But you're starting with pre with hummus. Okay. But then you're adding some chickpeas to it. So you've got like some solid beans see, that sure, are going to sure. be in the mix, right? Cherry tomatoes, harissa, which is that like hot pepper paste mm-hmm, type of thing. That sounds good. Uh, olive oil, salt, pepper, pine nuts, and then you're going to you're going to dip your flatbread in there. Yeah, that sounds really I, good. And that would be healthy. Wait, so that's in the oven then for how yeah. long? Yeah. Uh, like. 25 minutes. Really? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm showing John. I know I can't oh, show you, but it, so it's beautiful. baked in a stoneware dish. Mm-hmm. And it looks kind of browned on top. Yeah, yeah. And but, very delicious. Lots of tomatoes in that Yeah, mix what do you think? I think it's 100%. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, that's going to be a lot better than the baked, but like, the, home, the store-bought stuff. The, or the loaded potato dip oh, sure, I was sure, talking sure, about sure, a few yeah. minutes ago. Is that like the, That's kind of like borderline Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet. I don't right? think it would be borderline. No, I think it it'd be full-bore Mediterranean. Okay. Anyway, I think that looks good. Okay, next one is dill mint yogurt dip. Mm, now, this mm. is, I am 100% behind I'm gonna this. I'm going to raise a flag here. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Well, it just sounds healthy. Okay. Well, it is healthy. Yeah, there it is. It is healthy uh, because it's got a Greek-style yogurt base. Mm, mm. I love the tangy thing, of, and I love yeah. eating it knowing that it's not going to kill me. Right. You know what I mean? Dill mint, though. You're There's... adding your dill, you're adding chives, and you're adding mint. You've got lemon juice in this. This tastes Greek. Uh-huh. This is going to taste. You can put flatbread as a dip. You can use potato chips. Is there olive oil in there? Uh, there is olive oil okay, in there. Yeah, Thank sure. you okay, for that's asking. That's good. All right. Uh, this is definitely going to be in oh, my. Oh, that's Sunday. This is this is a definite. Really? This is a definite. All right. Uh, creamy kimchi dip. You have, how do you feel about kimchi? I don't know. Tell me. Uh, I don't like kimchi. Why? Lexi. Oh, I love kimchi. I know you though. do. That's why I brought it up. Why don't you like kimchi? It's kind of gross to me. Really? Lex, why do you love it? I love how spicy it is uh, and the pop. fermentation in it is mm. just so, I like that really like pop, like that punch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you eat it cold? Yes, I do. Yep. Or I put it in ramen and I make it like a kimchi ramen, soup. Ramen, kimchi mm-hmm. Kimchi yeah. soup is honestly so good. Holy smokes. Well, then you might like the creamy kimchi dip. Mm-hmm. Because right. you're breaking out the food processor to quickly mix some drained kimchi, some toasted sesame oil, and lemon juice with sour cream. Does that right. sound good to you? That sounds like a winner to me. So, right. but here's the deal with me. Uh, quick and food processor, they're not synonymous. You're right about that. Because the cleaning of the, the cleaning of the food processor. Smoke. I know. You're There's right. nothing quick about that. I agree. That's a commitment. You're right. I think hard and long about bringing yeah. out the food processor. No, I agree. I'm with you on that. Um, and beet dip. Which is second to last in the beet offerings. Dip. Yeah. Mm. Roasted beets, tahini, lemon juice, and garlic. I don't like beets. My kids, my wife, they all love beets. To me, it tastes like dirt. Yeah. I, do. I don't like it. Kind of like sweet dirt. Yeah. 
Lex, you have a feeling about Beats? Beats? I'm not a fan. Re- okay. Ah, see? But, okay, you? but I'm going to show you this picture. Oh, that's so pretty. It's a beautiful Whoa, look how red color. That yeah. It's a really beautiful mm-hmm. color. Lovely And red. Beats, if you, if you don't have a history of kidney stones, which sadly I do, Beats are very, very bad if you have kidney stones. But if you don't, I think this beet dip is like the perfect way to approach. Right. I really do. The last one I just want to bring up is the warm crab and spinach. Oh, please. That's like the pinnacle of Is of it dips. really? Oh, I think so. Okay, crab so that, and spinach? That's mm. the bottom for me. Really? Yeah, that's the Why? absolute bottom. Why? Zero interest in that. What? I don't really like crab very much. What? No, I really don't. Huh. Too sweet, too much, mm, too rich. Super delicious. Nope, can't do it. Really? Okay, enjoy your beet dip. Yeah. Uh, Who is the um, who's the act for the halftime at Super Bowl this year? Do you know? Yeah, it's Usher. Usher. Yeah. Okay. So people are betting on Usher, right? The, the How long it's going to be? Usher what kind of what songs he's going to do, et cetera, okay. et cetera. Well, uh, Rolling Stone has an article: every Super Bowl halftime show ranked from worst to best, and they say, of course, there's no gig in music like the Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> 15 minutes to justify your legend. <laughs> that's that's a lot. You have 150 million people watching, most of whom are distracted by the nacho platter. All the dips I just talked about. Yep. And um, you have to run to the bathroom as well. So Rolling Stone put together a subjective, personal, irresponsible, indefensible <laughs> breakdown of the winners and the losers. The it's Bonos. A, listen, it's a really funny article. It really is. Okay. So then let me just say this. The So they go through 35 of them. Yeah. Right. Number 35 is the Black Eyed Peas from 2011. And they say, the worst, just the worst. Watching at the time, you knew instantly you were witnessing something magical and special, like seeing a unicorn cough up blood. (laughs) And then they just crush them. And then they say later on, Christian Aguilera did her memorable interpretation of the national anthem. So yeah, music had a rough day. And so did Steeler fans. Yeah, that right? was that, that was, was rough. Yeah, that was the uh, the Green Bay Packers. It surely was. And then the they go number thirty four is everything from nineteen sixty seven to nineteen eighty nine, which of course, when the Super Bowl first started, you know they had college marching yeah, bands. Yeah, right. Of course, yeah. George Burns, the Carol Rockettes, Channing? Elvis impersonators, up with people. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. It, but then, of course, they got hip and were like, oh, man, we could keep people tuned in and sell even more commercial airtime and, you know, up the prices for that as well for these spectacles of the halftime shows. And so then they go forward from 32 downward. Rolling Stone does say, though, John, it'd be silly to judge these older shows by modern day standards since none were planned as anything more than a cheese ball filler. But at least they weren't the black eyed peas. <laughs> So then the list takes off. Yes. Okay. So where? So you are landing where? When yeah. You look okay. At all these... So so I looked at all of these, and yeah. I have my own list yeah. of my favorite, the fa- my not... favorite ones. Okay. Um. And so everybody comes at this a little differently, but I think there are some historically bad ones, and I would say the historically bad ones, in my mind, I don't even remember them. You don't. No, Some I don't them, remember New Kids on the Block how in about 91. This? Do you remember Patti LaBelle, Tony Bennett, Tenny nope. Pendergrass, and the Miami <laughs> Miami Sound Machine? No, but Who that, put that together? That's the most hilarious conflagration of people. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. The Blues Brothers, right? Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and John Goodman? I, I mean, don't remember Jim that. Belushi. How about Gloria Estefan and the Olympic figure skaters? What the heck? What? The Who? 
The who? I don't remember the who because that was one of the Steelers Super Bowls, I think, wasn't 2010. it? 2010. Uh, that was the year after. Yeah. So how about the, the country? I mean, because there's a lot of country artists, right? Tanya Tarker. Uh, Tanya T- Tucker. Tucker. Clint Black, Travis Twitt, and the Judds. Nope. That was don't a long remember time that. ago. How about Phil Collins, Christina Aguilera, Enrique Iglesias, Tony Braxton, and <laughs> Tina Turner? <laughs> That's a lot. That's that was two thousand, right? Of course, uh, oh. Justin Timberlake and oh, the uh, the wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, yeah, I remember that clearly. Right. Okay, but one of my favorites was Justin Timberlake. The next time by himself, yes, Redemptive. I thought that one was super fun. Yeah, that was uh, twenty eighteen. Great stagecraft. I really like that one. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. How about the weekend? That was not that, that long was ago. stupid. It's big time. That was so stupid. Bruno he Mars. He doesn't have nearly the profile. No. To, or the resume to be able to do that. It's not pandemic, that was, right? Was that, was, pandemic? that was really yeah, terrible. Yeah, it was pandemic. Yeah, they were like, okay. That was really bad. Right. Um, I also have to, I liked Stevie Wonder and Gloria Estefan. That was a while yeah. ago. It was in 99, but I remember that. I guess because I was a big, I still am, a big fan of both of them. Sure, sure. Both of them. Tom Petty by himself for that one year? Okay. I wasn't a, I hate to say this, I wasn't a Tom oh. Petty fan until he died. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. And that, So I was late to the party on that. Yeah, the Rolling Stones? Uh, right? That was a Steelers Super Bowl. 2006. Yeah, that was the uh, Seahawks Super Bowl. Right. I was, I was way too nervous of the Steelers <laughs> Of course, one. yeah, right. Thank you for asking. Okay, um, so give me your best. Okay, so my best. Are you ready? Yeah. Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. Oh, five. Yeah, that was excellent. I really love that. Yeah. I love Paul. And I'm, you know, I'm not a Beatles fan. I know fan. you are but I really like I really like that. Um, I thought uh, the 2016 Coldplay, Beyonce, Bruno Mars was very good. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm not a Beyonce fan either, but I'm a big Bruno Mars fan, and I like Coldplay a lot. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I would I, I would give them that. Um, you're going to be shocked by this one, but I'm going to say it. Rihanna. What? Yep. From uh, two year? years ago. Okay. I really liked that show. Really? I thought it was engaging. Mm-hmm. She was clothed. Yeah, she was. Um, oh, that's I high just, marks. I don't know. I appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, number two, Prince from oh. 20, 2007. No, that was the best. Everybody says that was the best. I believe it was. Okay. I Prince believe it's number two. It out. Yeah, it was outstanding. <sighs> it was, and it was raining. Number. It was great. It was, a, it it was, was great. Only Prince. It was great. Excellent. It was great. But nothing can surpass you two in 2002. 2002, yeah. I mean, right after uh, 9-11. Yep. That... I remember that show like I saw it yesterday, really? and I don't think I've seen, I haven't seen a, a recording of it in a decade at oh, least. Oh, can you see it's these, I wonder? so, I bet you could. Yeah. It was so profoundly beautiful. Yeah. When they started rolling that list of all, all of those who had died, and it was it was just gorgeous. And I remember Bono ripping his jacket open and having the American flag in yeah. there. They I were mean, singing Beautiful Day. Oh, it was gorgeous. It yeah. was, nobody can handle a moment like that like you two. Yeah. It's just the way it is. So, great Yeah, what about you? Do you, do you well, dispute any of my findings? No, not particularly. I mean, I'm not a big Rihanna fan. Okay. You know, kind of right. meh. But seriously, to me, the Prince, the showmanship of Prince yeah. is was, is it unparalleled. Was. It really was. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group.